1: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the final episode of Seniors in Tech, a mini-series where we bust stereotypes by talking to seniors who are either working in the tech industry at the beginning of the digital era or who are currently tech fluent in their everyday lives. I'm Dr. Nikki Ackermans, and this week we are talking to Dr. Ruth Pords, who worked on software that ran particle accelerators all around the world. So if you don't mind starting out with your name and start telling us a little bit about yourself and when you started using tech.
0: (laughs) Okay, so my name is Ruth and I started actually interacting with tech um, while I was at uh, university in England when I had a summer job at um, the British Aircraft Corporation starting to understand how to write software for one of their small systems. And after that, when I graduated with a degree in physics, I got a job at uh, one of the early particle accelerators, which was in Boston, next to Harvard University. (laughs) And there we were writing programs to measure what was happening with the particles in the accelerator, but also to handle the data that was coming off the uh, electronics. Um, and so, this conversion of things that are signals in wires measuring you know neutrons and electrons coming off particle collisions and putting those onto some kind of data media so that the scientists could later interpret them and analyze them and come up with some specific scientific result was very much the kind of technology that I was involved in early on, using things like paper tape where you had to splice it and glue it together if you made a mistake in your software, to uh, stacks of cards that, you know, you could drop on the floor and say, oh, and to the very, one of the very early means, which was sort of cobbled together almost to move that data from the experiment building at Harvard to the uh, computer center uh, at Harvard across the road. It was a very big deal that we actually <laughs> had a wire down which we could put the data that was flowing. We did things like um, make sure that we had a, a software that could go over the midnight successfully, almost oh, like yeah. the, you know when we went to, yeah. to, to 2000, so that was very early on. And then I did the same kind of thing in, in the Midwest, in Chicago for a couple of years before going back to England and then working for a few years in the uh, big particle accelerator. Oh, at CERN. In Switzerland at CERN, following my husband who was doing PhDs and experiments and having children and working part-time and ending back in Chicago at the Fermi National Accelerator Lab in 1980, where I stayed for um, 30 Six years before wow. I retired. So that was my main career mm-hmm. and moved from started off still doing this collection of the data um, from all the electronics, working with the scientists, talking about the goals and, of course, expanding the amount of data every year in yeah. every experiment And the amount of uh, computing that needed to be done and also very important for particle physics and accelerators is the speed at which you can do things. So Mm -hmm. pushing the boundaries on the
1: speed, on the volume, on the amount of computing. That's actually what I was going to ask if you noticed, uh, you know, changing systems, I I assume, throughout the years, uh, what the biggest changes were or some things that you wouldn't have expected when you started out, maybe.
0: So, if you talk about the systems and the um, the changes and the contrast, we talk about the size of the physical hardware mm-hmm. going from these very big mainframes down to your desktops, down to your laptops, down to your smartphones, down to your Apple Watches. Yeah. And that's been true for um, scientific computing. The uh, speed of computation, which has got faster and faster, both with the innate, the intrinsic speed of the chips doing the computing, but also, which I'll talk about at some point, which is the ability to harness computers over the network. So Mm. the the internet arriving, the ability to reach out to computers all over the world and actually harness their power to do one, to focus on one scientific problem has enabled us to have a lot more computing uh, in aggregate. Um, and so that's been, that's one of the hallmarks of the later experiments at CERN and Fermi Lab that I've been involved with, um, is the ability to share computing.
1: It, just, I'm curious, could you give an example of like, maybe how slow the earlier um, computing yeah. was? So I, when I
0: come to specific numbers, I'm not so good, but it certainly it took us a lot of thought and you know 100 to 200 lines of software and then you know um, 10 seconds to work out what to do when the time changed from 11:59 to 12:01 <laughs> <laughs> now of course that just is one instruction and it just happens automatically in the hardware and in the electronics the ability to move data uh, across the ocean it used to be that if you had a lot of data it's actually faster to put it all on a magnetic tape put it onto a uh, an airplane, fly the airplane <laughs> across the Atlantic, and take the, the magnetic tape off and deliver it to the office door I've of the person who wanted it. <laughs> um, and, but now, um, with the with the satellites and the fiber under the Atlantic, and the and the speed of the electronics, the the um, optical fiber links mm-hmm. um, that exist, it is with the huge data sets of terabytes and petabytes and exabytes and (laughs) whatever is next, um, you know, you stack a CD disc and you get higher than the Eiffel tower or you get higher than a pyramid with the amount of data that you need to move across the ocean. Um, It is faster to do it using the electronics than to put it onto something and carry it with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned the advent of the internet and we talked about, uh, when we were emailing, that you had a little bit of a part to do with that. Could you explain how you were a part of that?
0: So I was, I was a user of the early internet and ARPANET for Physics. Geophysics. Um, but of course, it's not just all the electronics and the hardware and the protocols, there's the actual software and interfaces to the user to use it. And so um, when uh, particle physicists at Fermi Lab were trying to expand the offerings of what we could work on, and um, we actually engaged in an astrophysics experiment. It was called Sloan Digital Sky Survey, and it's actually about on its fourth phase now. And it started back in the very early 90s. Mm-hmm. And before that time, um, some of the astrophysicists had, for example, sat at their desk in Hawaii and looked at pictures of the sky and identified a galaxies and the kind of galaxy and written it down, or at least typed it into a typewriter, mm-hmm. um, the kind of galaxy, and they would d- do 10,000 galaxies themselves <sighs> um, with the advent of the Sloan digital sky. Survey, it was clear there was too much data and too much computation and too many organizations to, um, to do it that way. And there was really a culture shift in astrophysics, for moving to, do, to to using computation and trusting digital software algorithms mm. to identify um, if something's a galaxy, if something is a, a star, if something's a nebula. Um, and, uh, and it happened at a, about exactly the same time that in high-energy physics at CERN, the web was invented or created. They started developing more protocols and a very good user interface. We were able to basically gel a collaboration with astrophysicists at universities and the national labs by being very early adopters Mm -hmm. of this way of universally and consistently accessing information wherever it is, without having to know exactly where it is.
1: Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between
0: skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model in the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash
1: Claude today. Yeah, I can imagine that was a big advance for that kind of science. Do you, do you remember your first email?
0: I'm one of those people who does delete things (laughs) I clean up I like to have my cupboards current and my my digital cupboards current too
1: (laughs) yeah I think a lot of us are guilty of uh, hoarding our digital stuff (laughs) yes yes partly
0: because I've got to that you want to talk about seniors and tech is I've got to that decade in life where I know that at some point my inheritors or my offspring or my kids will have to come and sort and they will receive things and they will have to sort through things. So I'd like them to be at least organized and clear and not have a lot of crud and out-of-date information. I think there's a real danger with it's so easy to create and store digital information um, both scientific and just day-to-day life and education, that first of all, you have to have the right hardware and electronics to be able to access it in 20 years, but also you need to be able to identify which is the truth, which is the most, up- which is current. Mm-hmm. And those kind of um, capabilities are left to the to the user, to the, to the individual in a lot of cases. So I, as I say, I don't tend to, I haven't kept... <laughs> You know, I don't have boxes and boxes of files from when there wasn't the computing, and I don't have, and I and I clean up my email and I clean up my files.
1: Yeah, that I'm sure uh, whoever inherits that will be very thankful to <laughs> to know that.
0: <laughs> Partially because I know there are so many paths to access um, information. One of the things I wanted to maybe point out in terms of seniors and technology mm-hmm. and computers is. Um, that you really have to have a different mindset than before there was so much tech. Because
1: Hmm.
0: if one thinks about a particular technology in a particular access mode as only one thing, then one tends to go too deep and one gets into trouble because computers can go in multiple directions. And yes, they're logical, and yes, they do exactly what the programmer tells them, but they are so fast and they have so many options and so many routes they can take that you never, you very infrequently end up in the same route. You very often take a direction that you weren't expecting you to or go that the computer has decided. And, and you go down a different path. It's, it's not always a rabbit hole. It might actually be better, but you certainly end up in a place that is unfamiliar. And so you have to be prepared to have the concepts and the ideas and the understanding of how this whole ecosystem environment is is working for technology in order not to get so overwhelmed yeah. by the complexity and ending up in, in in some unknown space. So I don't know. I've explained to my husband many times how um, a client and server works and mm-hmm. Dropbox is a ubiquitous uh tool that everybody sure. is using but you can have your Dropbox files locally and on your laptop and on your phone and on your watch and on and it's all sitting out there in the cloud and this this interaction and interplay of so many different pieces is something that that he has found it extremely difficult to to get into his brain and feel is a part of his mental model and so I think a mental model is very important and it's something that it, we learning is more difficult as we get older and, le- and certainly when we started off with much less tech we didn't have to have these kind of models at all
1: yeah so it's something that we
0: really have I think Good that um, it's not just which key book key you type and you know if you talk to Siri or not or Alexa or not <laughs> it's you know having an idea in your brain how it's really working
1: yeah. And that's kind of interesting because I I would almost go to say that a bunch of young people today don't really know what the cloud is and don't care, but like get that it works kind of intuitively and maybe coming in as someone who doesn't or wasn't born with this tech already existing, you have to think, okay, but like, how are these things connected? How is it, you know, how is the logic behind it? And so, yeah, I could imagine how that would make it more difficult if I had to Google how every piece of new tech worked, I I wouldn't come out of it. <laughs>
0: And that's one of the linkages, I think, and, and partnerships between science and education is that science is, is advancing the innovation and pushing the boundaries of mm-hmm. technology in terms of large data, large computing, large collaborations of, of hardware working on one problem and the speed. Scientists always push the envelope there, um, but you need the education and the, the underlying uh, theoretical models in order to be able to then contribute and move things forward and innovate.
1: And I think educating that is important. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and passing that on. And and so you were uh, mostly doing software for these uh, particle accelerators and what was, uh, what was your favorite project that you worked on? If you're um, allowed to tell us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, um, during the um, 2000s, And still going today, um, I worked on a project called Open Science Grid, which is a collaboration between anybody who wants to join uh, mainly universities wherever they are in America, but also wherever they are in the world to share their computing resources and share their software uh, for science. So any individual who has some science grant or some science idea can come and get access through using particular software to a whole set of computing around the world who are, who are collaborating with and signed the policies for and obey the security of all these qualifiers. Yeah. Um, and originally started as part of the CERN Large Hadron Collider. Um, it has these partners around the world, and I worked on the, the U.S. side of it, but in partnership with and collaboration with Europe. And so this idea that it's something that is, like the web, is democratizing. It was always, the web was always is touted as to the democratization of information. Mm-hmm. This is democratization of computing and storage That's and great. access to um, the computing that one needs. Now, it doesn't affect seniors or, you know, <laughs> the technology. It somewhat affects the technology I, I have on my desktop. It's enabled things like these... Um, uh, citizen science projects, mm. where people are able to either do the computing on their laptop, uh, wherever it is, or go to the, you know, the the data storage in in London and and contribute. And I suppose, you know, it's leading to artificial intelligence and the ability of Alexa to give you your song within two minutes of <laughs> you asking for it, <laughs> which I always find amazing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that having worked on software and, and things like this so early on has given you an edge on using technology today, or is it just as hard because it's so different?
0: Uh, I think I approach it realizing that it's going to take some time to understand and use. And I have, as I said, I have a model. It's, I don't think intuition is sufficient, I would say, um, mm-hmm. because it's just too complex and too large and too evolving and so i suppose i know the questions to ask because of my history and my background and um and maybe what some of the answers mean but i think it's it's more the kind of questions to ask the kind of places to research the what might be available to you know do i believe what i read you know when mm, they tell me that's <laughs> a good point <laughs>
1: <laughs> i have one more question that's that's more personable, personal than tech related but how excited were you when the Higgs boson discovery came out? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't work on it. I mean, I did computing with it, um,
0: but it—it's almost a relief
1: that, um, <laughs> That's a good point.
0: that the this um, you know billions of dollars spent on one scientific project uh, was able to come to fruition. Yeah. Um, what I found very exciting was how involved and exciting. The ordinary person, my sister was, who was a social worker in England, Mm. and she was thrilled. And her husband, who's a lawyer in England, was thrilled. (laughs) And all the um, teenagers in England and really the number of uh, young people going into science and math in England really had an uptick when the Higgs boson was found. And, you know, they all watch um, uh, whatever that TV program is. (laughs) Um, and and sh- and they've continued the any new result that comes about high energy physics particle physics discovery they're still excited. Um, so oh and my. I find that just wonderful.
1: Yeah, you you can tell uh, in your face. It's hard to translate <laughs> over voice, but it, it's nice that the the newer generation is appreciating all the hard work. I guess. <laughs> and people not directly involved. Yeah,
0: priorities are different. That they see that they can sh- somehow share in the excitement and in the um, success and in the accomplishment.
1: Oh, that's great. Do you have any advice for other generations about how to approach tech? So I think I'm repeating myself, but I think it's to
0: um, think outside the box. Don't regard things as um, the be-all and end-all and the end of of the solution. So question, innovate, change have ideas, um, and, and to learn enough and to be prepared to spend the time and the intellectual focus to learn enough to be able to both not just use but also advance
1: and change. That's a good point. Spending the time and, and having patience with technology is something that maybe we need to learn better. <laughs> and one of
0: the mantras, of course, at the moment is you, have, you learn through failing. You have yep. to be uh, able, to, so you know. You come back to the word resilience. You you do things, you fail, but that's a good thing, and that helps you move forward.
1: That's that's good advice. I hope that people <laughs> will take it. All right, thank you. <laughs> and that was our last guest for the Seniors in Tech mini series. We hope you liked it, and if you. Do let us know on social media and if you want to hear more fascinating life stories you can find me hosting my own senior podcast over at Stories Your Granny Never Told. Thank you for DTNS for hosting this mini series and we will see you next time. Hi, this
0: is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation.